Hey, Steve, thanks for being with us. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us. I am so glad to be here. I love your program. A Master of the Workflow is something that I recommend to everyone, and it's really a pleasure to be here. Richard and I really appreciate that. And uh, yeah, we've done we've done really well. Uh, great last session. And uh, it's a boom time in the industry. So uh, a lot of people want to need to be trained on the specifics of, uh, of the assistant editing workflow. So we're in a good place right now. The industry's popping and uh, let's hope it uh, it stays that way. No kidding. I don't know how you get away from it, but the great thing is you don't have to. And uh, it's providing a lot of people with a lot of work. So you've done a lot of teaching around the world. And I wanted to ask you, can the craft of creative editing be taught in the classroom or even, let's say, in an online course situation? Uh, I definitely think so. I mean, that's not really how I learned, but um, I've taught a lot of people that way. I think the, the, the big thing is in that situation to be able to get feedback is probably the biggest thing. Because if you're just... You know, if I'm just trying to teach you how to edit and I, I give you a bunch of principles or I explain a bunch of stuff to you, that's all well and good. But the learning really isn't complete until I see something you've caught and I can talk to you about it. And I'm like, oh, you really got it. That's fantastic. Nice work. Or, ah, you know what? The, the, the pacing is off a little bit or you really need to be more careful with your audio transitions, something like that. I think the feedback is an important part of the loop to that. Uh, whole training thing. Yeah. And, that, and that's really kind of a big issue in the classroom situation or online course situation, not getting that immediate feedback because you're kind of siloed. And let's face it, editing, you, you know, we do it as individuals, but it's a, it's a collaborative process like the rest of filmmaking, right? Absolutely. I, mean, I think that's one of the reasons why getting the feedback is important, not only for the training aspect of it, but because it's so true to what we do as editors is we're getting feedback. I mean, can you imagine if you just cut a movie and handed it off to your director and said, it's done, put it on the air, you know, it just wouldn't fly, right? You've got a, it's a collaborative thing. You want to hear what the director has to say. You want to get their input. You want to get the input of your assistant editors, right? You want to get input of even uh, people who are, are not filmmakers, but are wa film watchers. It's great. I mean, most editors will tell you it's really good, valuable input when you sit Maybe not the, you know, the note cards and that kind of stuff, but is really valuable input when you sit with a group of people in a theater and, you know, you feel the seats rustle and you, you feel people shifting in their seats and coughing a little bit. You're like, oh, this is dying on the vine or they're totally on the edge of their seat. You know, you've dialed it in properly. So even that kind of feedback is great to get. That's right. We're making the films for the audience. And, uh, you know, as, as big of an ego as, as any of us might have, uh, we really are there to please the audience. From your experience, is there a best way to learn how to become an editor? Well, um, although it's not the way that I learned, I really, really believe that the best way to become an editor is to be an assistant editor first. There's just so much that you that you need to pick up from an experienced hand. It's like any craft, right? There's there's masters and apprentices for a reason. You know, there's master wood carvers and there's master stone cutters and there's master bricklayers. And those people have knowledge that you don't have when you're starting out, no matter how much schooling you have, you just don't have the, that important information. You haven't been sitting in that seat. Uh, and so sitting with someone that can tell you, Hey, you might want to shut up. You know, when the director says something like that, you know, <laughs> keep your mouth, you know, read the room, right? Learn to read the room, learn to, um, not 
freak the director out because there's a huge problem. You know, there's a huge problem as an editor, but don't bring it up when the producer's sitting there, you know, bring it up at some other point. Like those are all valuable things that uh, I could try to teach that as a teacher, but you're really better off sitting in a room with somebody like you who's the editor going, oh, I see how he interacts with the director. I see how he interacts with the producer. I see uh, how things are working. And that's that's got to be the best way to learn, I think, for sure. Yeah, those soft skills are are just really hard to get out of a book or in an online class, anything like that. You know, we can share our experience about this, but it's one of the really critical skills that you best get by being in the room and feeling the tension between people or the political, you know, subtleties and not putting your foot in your mouth or pissing somebody off, frankly. And even the, even in the hard skills, even the knowing how to go about approaching a scene, for example, there's an assistant editor and he's cut something together and he looks at your scene at the end of the day, he might go, wow, that's pretty it's not really that good, you know, but then he goes, oh, I see the following day he's, he was able to see, you know, he changed things and now it's much better. And even, you know, a, a few days later, it's gotten better and better. And you're actually seeing the progress of a scene from the very early first draft of the scene to a finished scene. That's super valuable for a young editor to be able to watch somebody do that instead of just saying, you know, me telling him, oh, by the way, you got to do a bunch of drafts. Oh, well, you know, you got to do a bunch of passes at the same scene. Like, well, what does that mean? So you've done dozens, maybe hundreds of interviews with the top editors in the field. Give us five key takeaways that you'd like to share with the audience about what it takes to become a really great editor. Ah, that's a great question. It has been over 300 interviews at this point. Wow. So <laughs> it's a lot of interviews. It's a lot of talking to a lot of great editors. Some of the biggest takeaways that I have from those things, one of the big ones is, I kind of say it facetiously, but editing is editing. In other words, editing is re-editing. That is a big takeaway, is the process that you go through from dailies. You know, every director will tell you that you know, and, and it's kind of hard to hear it as editors, you know, but the editor's cut, quote unquote, the editor's cut is like something that will make them throw up. It's the worst thing that they've ever seen. <laughs> now, that's that's really not a reflection on us because it's not our job to make that editor's cut perfect. It's our job to deliver basically the script. I mean, most people would say to deliver the script. And then even, you know, we're not cutting lines out. We're not rearranging things the way we want it. We're saying, this is what you delivered to me. This is the dailies you delivered to me, the script, the way it was delivered to me. Here's your cut. Now, the thing is, that is such a small part. Like when you think of uh, like, what was it on your last film or TV project? What was the dailies part? compared to the rest of the, the schedule? How, how much of a percentage? Yeah, the dailies part is, uh, well, in just in terms of pure editing, the dailies part is like the heavy lifting. It's often been referred to as like breaking the back of the film because you just have, especially in the nowadays, in, in the days of digital, you just have such a huge volume 
of material to carve out that initial cut from. You know, you're really working from a giant palette. And then once you get into the director's cut and then the producer's cut, studio's cut, you're really starting to deal with the restructuring, the subtleties, the fine cutting, you might say. But, you know, as an editor, the editor's cut is really the heavy lifting. It's kind of like the most uh, labor-intensive part of the job. I think, you know, on the back end, when the director gets in, labor intensive just sort of is a is a reflection of your schedule or or how many you know how much how many weeks you have to finish the film but yeah the editor's cut is is the heavy lifting in in my experience but don't you think that the re-editing the editing in context the fine tuning the trimming the um all of the restructuring that happens further down the road that's where the body of the work in the schedule schedule wise you know on a tv show you've got maybe se- uh, 10 days maybe or something, 12 days of shooting. And then you've got five or six weeks past that. So it's always right. the refining is always much longer than the original cutting. So that's absolutely, one, yeah, that's one of my things. Another one is patience. So often, you know, I want something to be further along than it is. And if you push that sometimes too fast to get something where it needs to be, I think the project suffers for that. I think that if you can go, okay, I've got it, you know, good. I think this is where I like this project right now is as good as I can have this edit be. And as I start to assemble the scenes around it, as I start to get feedback, if I can be patient enough to let the the film kind of evolve and become what it wants to become, that's a pretty valuable thing than trying to force things right at the beginning. Um, Soft skills are huge. Uh, One of the big things there is just you are a steward for the director. Your job is not, you know, that was one of my early mistakes was I took on too much for myself. I felt like the project was mine. Well, the project's not mine. The project's the director's. I'm there to help the director, helping the director, trying to achieve that vision, supporting them in any way that you can, trying not to panic them or freak them out. All those soft skills of of helping the director basically is another gigantic thing for me. Yeah, um, uh, the patience thing took me years to learn. Uh, I was always so anxious when I was, uh, you know, in my early days of cutting, and I was always just thinking, well, I'll just put in more hours. And a lot of time, a lot of the times, it's not just putting in more hours; it's letting the cut as it lives sit for a while, putting it on a shelf and then maybe coming back the next day or the next week. I, I mean, as long as you're getting it done by the time you need to show it to the director, there's a there's a simmering time, almost akin to cooking, getting away from it and having uh, the ability to reflect and come back to it really, really pays big dividends as an editor. Yeah, I think so too. And a lot of people will talk about that even in the dailies cutting that you know, you'll either you'll get maybe a little frustrated. You'll go, oh my gosh, I don't even know what to do today. Some days you just have those days and you say, you know what, I'm just going to assemble it as quickly, you know, as as much as I can. I'm not going to worry about it. I'm going to go to look at some other dailies. I'm going to go do something else, do something productive on the show, but I'm going to just let that one sit at a certain point so that I can come back to it and know that I'm going to come back to it. And reminding me of something else that's one of those big points is that you really need to subvert your ego as an editor. We all have egos. I think, you know, we're paid for the fact that we know what we're doing, that we're good at what we're doing, that we have great ideas. uh, So that, you know, gives you a little bit of an ego, but you have to subvert that ego to the project itself, to the story itself, and definitely to the director. 
Um, Absolutely. That doesn't mean that you sit like a milk toast in the edit chair. No, it means it means you're fighting for the story. And but as as long as you're fighting for the story and not your personal ideas, as long as it's not about you, as long as it's about the show and the project and the story, that's what it needs to be about. Is there a common trait or set of traits that you've observed in your discussions with really successful editors? Well, I think we've talked about a couple of them. Ego, you know, and patience are two of the big ones. Um, I really find that many of the great editors are very humble people. Um, not again, not that they're meek and, and not that they don't know that they're great, but that they have to, especially in the edit suite, they, in the cutting room, they have to, um, be humble or else they're not going to get very far. And certainly I've sensed humbleness from them because 300 people have been willing to talk to me, <laughs> you know, that, that's, it's really nice. It's, it's humbling to me. Um, definitely the patience thing for me is a little bit of a curiosity is definitely one of the things that I think really pays off that you want to, Oh, well, let me see, maybe I could try this. Um, or that kind of thing. Another one is that ability to see a note and be willing to, um, execute it. Even if you think it's stupid. You know, I mean, we've all seen a note that we don't think is right. Now, the the trick that many people don't say is how many times have you seen a note that you think is stupid and you shouldn't do, but you do it and you're like, uh, that's better. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. So many times, so many times. And, and again, that's another thing that for me came with maturity. And actually, as soon as I had that feeling uh, or thought when I was given a note, I would immediately say, or, or nowadays I immediately say, great, let's try this. This is, I think this is ridiculous. Let's see how I can, you know, make this work for the director. And yeah, you know, eight out of 10 times, something will surprise you and it'll, it'll lead you down a path, which, uh, which will really, really um, have great rewards. So yep. I think that's such an important point, having an open mind, staying humble. You know, some of the great editors I've worked with, they choose moments to speak very carefully. Um, and they're really not people who they don't constantly need pats on the back because you don't get a lot of pats on the back sometimes. <laughs> you know what I mean? What you're there to do is pat the director on the back for their great ideas. Yeah. Absolutely. I, I think that's that's so true. Steve, what do you think is the best way for new editors to develop confidence in their editing abilities? A lot of people talk about, you know, fear of, uh, you know, fear of going in there and, and, and making the cut or or imposter syndrome. How do how do young people develop their confidence? Uh, I always attribute it to time spent in the chair. Um, there is no way to feel confident in what you're doing without sitting in the chair and realizing, oh my gosh, uh, I'm ha having a terrible time. Okay. I can get through it. You know, it's, it's only by running up against a hurdle and getting over the hurdle that, you know, you can do it again because otherwise you run up against the hurdle for the first time. You're like, I don't, uh, I guess I'm done. No, 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 no. You gotta, you gotta do something to get yourself past that. And so I'm always telling people, cut anything you can cut. There's a couple of guys that I'm trying to help out. And I'm like, even if you go find your favorite movie 
that has a scene that you can recreate. You know, maybe it's just a conversation between two guys. Maybe it's something from Stripes, you know, two guys sitting on a bunk bed and, and, you know, on a cot and they're having a conversation. Shoot that. Figure out what the setups are. Go, okay, there's a wide shot from the front. There's an over-the-shoulder shot. There's another over-the-shoulder shot. There's a close-up. There's a close-up. I can at least tell what the setups are in the scene. Now I'm going to recreate that. And I'm just going to shoot it with my cell phone and two buddies. And they don't have yeah. to be good actors. You just, But now I can actually cut that together. Fantastic. Do something. Make a documentary. Do a podcast. Do something where you're able to get in there and go, oh, I, well, what can I do to make this, this little documentary on uh, how to make chili? Okay, well, how, how do you show that? Oh, well, I, I, I'm missing a really important shot. Okay, well, let's go get that shot. And you start to realize the things that you need to make a good edit. And so I definitely think it's, it's time in the chair. Absolutely. Great advice. Uh, I find for myself, even making these, uh, you know, little interviews, uh, you know, I, it, it gets me cutting, uh, you know, I pre-record them and just honing the craft. It, it, it's almost, I think that for a lot of us, it's almost like we almost always have to be making something. I, I feel that's very true for myself. And, you know, I'm kind of a part-time chef also, or an amateur chef at home. And, you, you know, it's the same process of making something that, you know, I derive a lot of satisfaction uh, from. And I think I think editors, you know, in general feel the same way. It's it's being in that moment and, and really getting in the zone. Uh, it's a really, really rewarding way to spend your time. Yeah. Uh, I, right now I am between projects at the moment and I am doing a, a little passion project, which is a documentary. It's, you know, I can do it at my own pace. I've got a bunch of interviews recorded. I'm cutting it away. And it's just something to keep the juices going until the next project rolls in. Yeah, that's really nice. So you've been doing your interviews for Art of the Cut. Seven years. Seven, <laughs> Seven years. years. Wow. How has editing changed from when you first started doing your, your interviews to now? I mean, have you seen, obviously the business has changed, there's technology has changed, but have you seen things change in a, in a more general sense? I, I don't think in seven years I have. I, I think that's a pretty short amount of time. I think if you go back and you see, you know, the early days of NLE and changing from film and videotape to NLE, like that was a big shift. I don't know how much change there's been since then. There have been a lot of new, a lot of new people in the business, which is fantastic. I think a lot of new voices are getting in, you know, we're able to see a lot of new voices. I have a shot in the edit chair, which is fantastic. Those are the things that that I'm seeing that I'm also really uh, loving. Um, but editing itself, I'm not seeing a change. Yeah, I mean, I guess the big changes that we've seen in our careers um, have been technology. Uh, I started on film, uh, you know, cutting 16 millimeter, 35 millimeter. And then there was videotape, which I avoided intentionally because I'm terrible at math and it scared the living daylights out of me. <laughs> and, uh, and then came the NLE and it was on a Mac computer and all of a sudden the heavens opened up and I saw, well, this is going to be the future. Um, but I guess the basic tenets of becoming a great storyteller, being uh, attuned to what's going to be needed out of a performance or, or a story overall, they really haven't changed. I mean, basically, stories have, have been being told since the beginning of time. 
And uh, there's a lot of new inventive ways people are telling stories. I think I think you've got a True. lot of people trying to, you're not trying to, but you know, breaking the mold, trying to do different things stylistically, which is kind of exciting. But I, I think overall, in a general sense, um, yeah, the craft itself, sitting in the chair and 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 trying to carve out a story, is pretty much pretty much the same. Yeah, I, I don't think there's a lot of difference. I mean, I talked to um, Kirk Baxter who cut Mank. Sure. And if you saw that, Mank was shot very much like, um, you know, the movies of that time. Right. And I asked Kirk, well, did you try to edit them like that? And he goes, hell no. It would have been, it would have sucked if I'd edited it that way. Um, you know. Staying in the master look, for the whole, yeah, the whole time. Yeah, basically that's right. You, you're you in a master almost the entire time. Occasionally you cut to a two or a three shot. You're almost never in a close-up or rarely. There was much less coverage. Now we have a ton more coverage. I think we've got much more, you know, the because of technology, you're able to get cameras move, you know, moving yeah. in a more interesting way. And even if you can't move them, you can at least put them in more interesting places. So instead of having a big bulky camera where you're like, well, we can really only have it out in front, you know, right. uh, now we can get it anywhere. And so you're getting much more interesting angles. You're getting more interesting action and movement of the camera. And all those are helping make the editing look more interesting. I agree. Yeah. It's amazing that they were even ever able to move those giant Mitchell BNC cameras, you know, with those <laughs> blimps they used to have to put on them and stuff. The things that we have today and that filmmakers have at their, you know, their hands today, it, it's just, it blows the mind. Yeah. I, wa I did an interview on, I think, Grey's Anatomy. They had a scene where they were a building had collapsed and they got the camera and the, and the actors into this little teeny spot. You're like, <laughs> They never would have been able to shoot that back in the day. It just wouldn't have been possible. Okay, let's talk a little bit about technology. I want to know, in your opinion, how important is it to be like a rock star on Final Cut Pro or Avid or Premiere? Is there a great value in that? I mean, I know a lot of editors aren't really that in love with technology. So how important do you think it is to be like a, a ninja with the software? Well, editors are probably not that ninja-y. But assistant editors, yes, I think they need to be very ninja-y. Uh, they have to be experts for sure because they're usually trying to help out somebody that's not that good at it. In 1996, Avid had this cool thing called the Avid Master Editors Program. You had to get invited and all this stuff. And I went to one of those Avid Master Editors training courses and was introduced to my first like big-time film editor, uh, who I won't say who it was. And I was shocked at how little they knew of how Avid worked. You know, they basically knew overwrite and splice, and that's about it. You know, that was that was the extent of their knowledge on Avid. I'm like, I am a hundred times better than this guy <laughs> at the Avid. And uh, I haven't cut any feature films at that time. But, you know, he had an assistant editor that was, you know, took care of a lot of that burden for him. The great Michael Kahn, a fantastic multi-Oscar winning editor, has Sarah Brochar, his, his most recent assistant editor, that is now an, a co-editor with him. And I think he relied on her a lot to say, hey, look, I know how I wanted to cut it together, but, you know, what button do I push? He, he knows a few of them, but he relies on his assistants to help him do a lot of that stuff. And if, as long as you can get stuff into the timeline, kind of piece it together, somebody else can kind of help you. Uh, me personally, I really love knowing that the NLE inside and out. I do think that I'm a ninja editor in an avid, at least maybe not so much premiere, um, but 
uh, I'm getting there, but definitely an Avid. I've been on Avid since 91. So um, I know it inside and out. That, that brings up a really good point. A couple of things I want to I mention there. I remember uh, when Dee Dee Allen uh, was at the end of her career, she actually ha- hired my former assistant, Rob Brakey, who was a, a ninja as an assistant and one of the first do the cutting. And she would sit behind him and she would tell him, you know, where to cut um, quite often and, you know, kind of using him as a, you know, as the literal pair of hands. Um, yeah, and I pusher. once mentioned to Didi, I was watching her cut and I was saying, oh my goodness, look at those hands, look at those hands. And she looked at me and she said, it ain't the hands, kid. It's what's up here. So uh, I, I really think that, you know, obviously there's not a lot of situations where an editor can hire a person to execute the cuts for them, except for the Michael Kahn's and the Didi Allen's. Short of not knowing the system at all, it really it stops being about the technology at some point. Um, yeah. Right. I think the younger I mean, generation of editors, though, are so, you know, organically adept at technology. You, you know, they're, they're just born ninjas. You know what I mean? Because they're, it's just <laughs> yeah. so comfortable to them. It's like watching your kid on on their iPad or something. It's like, oh, my God, how do they type so so fast on that thing? <laughs> yep. I taught my daughter uh, who is who is. 21 or 22 at the time, I taught her how to edit on Avid on an airplane ride. You know, she was, she just pledged some sorority and she wanted to edit a little video together for her sorority. I'm like, here, we'll sit next to each other. I got my laptop and some three or four hour flight and she was done. That was, I taught her the whole thing and it was enough for her to cut together a really nice piece. So um, I don't think it takes much, but I do think that when you are a master at the technology, the the ideas get from your brain onto the screen much faster and much easier. Absolutely. Um, I know, I, you know, I, I'm hitting buttons automatically. I'm, I know where things are going to go. I don't even, I don't even think most of the time when I'm actually editing or I'm thinking of the edit, not I'm of how I'm going to execute what I'm trying to do. That's the benefit of being the ninja is because I can, and it's not even so much to go faster, right? Because going faster doesn't help you, right? We've talked about that. You need to have patience. If anything, you need to let it simmer, if anything. So speed in and of itself doesn't help you as an editor, but what it does help you with is it helps you that your ideas are not stopped in the execution that, that if I think of an idea, I can have it on in the timeline in an instant. Yeah. That's no. the benefit of, of being master. I, I totally agree. Editing at the speed of thought is, is, is a really satisfying kind of experience. And also it leads into when you're working with a director and you're kind of in the flow and you're kind of working, uh, you know, very intensely and you're almost executing their ideas before they have a chance to tell you about them because you're just so much on the same wavelength. It's a, it's a really satisfying feeling. Yeah, I and, and I'll tell you, that pays dividends in getting rehired. Um, I've got a, a, a director that I work with, and literally, as he was telling me what his ideas were, I was executing them, and when he finished the sentence, I would hit play and play his idea for him. And he'd be like, you're like a ghost editor. How like are you? There, I didn't even see any buttons being pushed, and the whole thing's cut together. I'm like, that's because I'm listening to you, and I'm actually working while I'm listening. And 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 so that is a person that relies on me. They they go next project, Steve Hallfish. Yeah, because he, uh, like he can work as fast as I can think. He can work. 
Yeah. That's what you want to be able to execute. Yeah. And, and when you get into those kinds of situations, it really starts to help you with your confidence because, oh, yeah. you know, you're in sync with someone and you're building that trust and they become, they, they start to rely on you. And, uh, you know, that's the kind of situation we ultimately all want to have as editors. Um, you know, following up on the technology question, what, you, you know, Avid was the, the big kahuna uh, for the longest time. It still is uh, the, you know, software used by the majority of feature film and television editors on Hollywood type projects, you, you know, big productions or even smaller productions. And when I say Hollywood, it could be anywhere in the world that has a production hub. Uh, what do you think of the newcomers? I mean, you know, Premiere is really trying to make inroads in Hollywood. They've been very, very uh, receptive to, uh, you know, some of the some of the requests of, of Hollywood. Um, you know, there's a lot of people out there cutting with Final Cut Pro, uh, I think a little bit more in the documentary world than in than in long form, uh, you know, dramatic. What do you see? How do you see it evolving from this point? I mean, do you have any kind of you know feelings about that? My my sense, um, I think Avid for a while is going to be still the the standard bearer, um, just because of the age of guys that are cutting or, and women that are cutting films. Um, but I think Premiere is close behind it, uh, and I have no problem with cutting in any of those things. Uh, the first feature film I ever cut was Final Cut Pro Seven then Avid, then I cut one in Premiere, then Avid again. And um, I even just cut a film in Resolve. Hmm. So I have literally cut features in everything other than FCPX, FCP10. I have not yet cut something in FCP10, but people are doing it. People are liking that software and I'm hearing great things about it. I'm just not the proponent of that. But Premiere, for example, I just explained to you earlier that I'm doing a little passion project. The easiest thing for me to do that passion project in was Avid because I just know it and I can do anything inside of an Avid. But I felt like uh, there were a couple of advantages to Premiere that I wanted to explore. And you're always, you know, in a passion project, not only do you want to get the project done and not only do you want to have the time in the seat, but you also want to learn something. And I felt that if I did this project in Premiere, it would help me learn Premiere better, would help me learn some other things that if I ever got another Premiere project, then I would be prepared to do it. So my current project, I'm cutting in Premiere. Cool. Yeah. Um, well, that's something we have in common. I'm doing the same thing. I'm, I, I took on a, a small independent film that one of my students shot. I thought this is a great opportunity. And quite frankly, I'm having a lot of fun with Premiere. I've, I've, I've said that to, you know, people in public and, uh, uh, you know, it's not without its quirks, uh, but so's the Avid and so are all yeah. software programs not without their quirks. So uh, it's it's nice to continue to learn, to continue to get good at other, other tools. Um, and plus, I'm just a technology geek, so it you know, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and I, I, I really am enjoying Premiere. I'm using a program or I guess a plugin called Transcriptive, yeah. which allows you to do something very similar in Avid. One of the reasons why Avid is so great in documentaries is because you can use phrase find. You can literally type, you know, find this word for me. And in all of your audio, it'll find the word and jump right to it and load it into your source monitor. Like you cannot beat that. You, like how could you cut in Premiere? 
Well, transcriptive is basically the same thing for Premiere and it works perfectly. I've been using it all day today and you just type a phrase, boom, automatically it gives you a little list. Here are all the places the phrase is used. You click one of them and it's in your timeline with an endpoint already marked. Wow. It's that's, fantastic. That's it's pretty cool stuff. It's saving me hundreds of hours because I've got, you know, I've got transcripts that I've got to, you know, find where all this stuff is. And I've got general time codes, but by typing a, a phrase and hitting enter, I'm there to the exact endpoint of the first frame of the first word that I want. And I don't have to do anything else. I don't have to search for it in a bin. I don't have to search for it in the clip. It's just there. Yeah. And those kind of plugins and, you know, the things that Premiere, for example, is developing with some of their AI tools and things like that um, are becoming ever more critical as we have to deal with mountains and mountains of footage. I mean, on docs, you have to do that anyway, but, you know, in scripted now, it's starting to get like that. Uh, you know, my last three films were improv comedies and, you know, I had 33 minute takes and to just find the material is so, <laughs> you know, it's just so time consuming that to have these kinds of new tools it's really the only way you're going to survive. What do you think editors need to know about the production side of the equation? I mean, do you think they really need to know much about what happens on set, you know, unless they're specifically asked for something? Uh, boy, that's a tough one for me because I am one of those editors that totally digs that side of the business. But um, many of the people that I talk to uh, will avoid the set at all at all times. They don't want to know anything. They just want to know what comes to them in dailies. And that's all that matters. But more and more, I'm seeing uh, editors become second unit directors because I've talked to numerous people. They're like, oh, well, we need the, the editors, the guy that knows what they want, what they need to put the scene together. And so if you need, oh, we're going to send you out and you can get some close-ups and wide shots and this angle and that angle, the editor is the perfect guy to be able to do that because a woman, because they, they know the pieces that they need. So for me, that's the big thing. And in this, this passion project that I'm doing, this documentary, I shot it all. Um, I, doing the writing. I'm doing literally everything. So, yeah. That's very cool. You know, and that's another thing that uh, I'm starting to encourage young editors to think more about. Obviously, you want someone who's going to be focused on being an editor because it's such a, you know, all-consuming craft and, and, and time-consuming craft. But I do think that it is important to go out there and maybe shoot your own material and like you said earlier, cut it together, you know, play with it, see what kind of experimentation you can do. And also, you, you know, maybe down the road, think of different ways that you can express your own voice, your own thoughts, your own stories, because we're really sort of entering this age, uh, you know, more in the YouTube kind of space, not as much in studio and streaming studio feature films and television, but we're really entering what they're calling mm -hmm. the creator economy. I believe young people should try to take advantage of that. You're creative, you know, you know you're, you, you're a storyteller. So go out and, and try to make your own stories. And I, I congratulate you, man, uh, for doing that. That's, that's really exciting. Uh, when you get it finished, uh, I certainly would like to, you to come back and tell us about it. Yeah, I would love to. It's a crazy story of a dog in 1936 that was put on trial for murder. <laughs> Uh-oh. My, 
My doggy just hit under the chair hearing that. <laughs> well, I can't tell you what happens, but I don't know spoilers, but don't worry. Looking forward to it. Yeah. The thing, the other thing with technology and the, the other side of the camera that I think is valuable is, you know, who's your chief collaborator? Your chief collaborator is the director. Those people are very production oriented. Often they are very technologically oriented. They know the, you know, what they're doing on the set. And so to be able to communicate with them, it helps to know what happens on the set to be able to help them. And sometimes, and I've heard about this more and more from people I've interviewed is the director will call the editor onto the set. They'll be like, Hey, I've got this tricky thing. I know the editing is going to be really important. Could you be on set with me during the shooting of the scene? Sure. Well, yeah, you want to, you know, uh, luck is the combination of opportunity and, uh, um, preparation or something. You want to be prepared. You want to be prepared that when that director calls you down to the set, that you're not a deer in the headlights. Right. Absolutely. And it's, it's, it's fun. I mean, you you know, some people don't like it, but, uh, you know, that's uh, where the movie magic uh, is happening during production. And and it's fun to go there. It's almost become like a cliche that editors are storytellers. I mean, I mean, you you know, back when I started out, nobody called, we never called ourselves storytellers. You know, we were, we were the, the guys or women in the back, you know, in the dark rooms where we were just cutting stuff together, the cutters, they would call us. Mm -hmm. Uh, so like I say, it's almost become a cliche, maybe even uh, like a marketing kind of tool to, you know, to uplift the editor as a storyteller. Uh, but in fact it is true. And, you know, we, we talked about it earlier. So tell me, Steve, how do editors become great storytellers or how do they become storytellers Mm -hmm. at all? Well, that's a really good question. It's one of those things that I'm exploring with this exact project. And I love that this is giving me the chance to to think about it is the basic story of a dog kills this kid and is put on trial for murder is very short and sweet. And I can tell it in like 10 seconds, but then that's not a documentary. So to tell the documentary, I've got to tell backstory and I've got to tell, uh, give context and all these things. Well, when you're trying to tell that story, how do you get to the context? How do you tell the backstory? Is the backstory first? Do you tell it completely chronologically? Do you start with the incident and then break at some point to go back and explain the backstory? All of that structural stuff, the storytelling stuff, that's the hardest part of the job. Like for me to cut together, like I almost wish that I had, I don't have an assistant on this because I don't have any money for myself, but I wish I had an assistant to do the basic cutting because I, I don't need I don't need to be doing this. I, you know, I need to be thinking about big story ideas. And you know, I do think that it gets overused that, that we're storytellers, but holy cow, that is the whole point of our jobs. Your question was, how do you get to be a good storyteller? The best way again is iteration. It's time in the seat. Now the great thing is you don't have to edit what you tell your story about. You can just tell a story, right? Just like you and I were telling, I was telling the story about making this documentary. Um, A joke is the shortest story you can have. And the, the, the way any joke works, if you, if you take the structure of it and screw it around, it's not funny anymore, right? Like the, the actual laying out the story is incredibly important to making the punchline work. Right. And also just like good editors, if I tell you a story and I fill it with all these 
irrelevant details, then it's also not funny. You're like, get to the freaking point. And like, what's, you know, why did the chicken cross the road? Well, <laughs> the road was Route 52 and 52 is in Iowa. And Iowa's kind of flat. And then the road is kind of goes around a corner and you're like, I don't need any of those details. Chicken <laughs> cross the road. That's all I need, right? That's super important as an editor to be able to know what is the critical detail that I need? What is some maybe detail that would make the joke more fun or more interesting. And then what's the payoff? And and to get to that payoff, what do you have to set up before the payoff? So telling a joke is one of the fastest ways you can iterate uh, storytelling. Yeah. But just telling stories to a friend, you know, when you if if you're listening, you know, you and I are sitting around a bar and you're telling me, oh, uh, you know, I went on vacation and here's some crazy thing that happened. I can be listening to you and going, man, this guy's a really good storyteller. You know, I'm, I'm engaged. You know, why am I engaged? Well, he's keeping the details short and he's, you know, all these things by learning and analyzing story and the way people, your friends are even telling you stories in a bar, the way that you see stories in a short film, when you're reading a comic in the Sunday paper, you're like, okay, you know, that I see it's a very short number of panels, right? To, to get you through that. Storytelling is really a critical skill and you can develop it. It's yeah. definitely developable. Developable. Give us your insights of where editing is going. Uh, where do you see it changing over the next five or 10 years? Or how do you see it changing over the next five or 10 years? Mm, well, um, I think the NLEs may change a little bit. I think we might be leaning a little bit more to Premiere possibly or some other, um, some other tools. I think that um, I'm hoping that AI will start helping us with some of the more mundane parts of what we try to do and will help us get through the mountain of material that we're being handed, which is fine with me. Um, and I think that also it's going to make it easier for us to revise things. Like one thing that most people probably know about is many of the two shots or three shots that you see in a film aren't a single shot, right? As an editor, you might say, hey, I'm going to do a split screen and I'm going to pull up this reaction because I want it to happen a little faster or I want it to happen a little slower. Right. Um, or, you know, I've got three takes and I love take one on, on the girl, but I love take three on the guy. Well, I'll just put them together. You know, sure. it'll be take three on and, and you try to edit them together. I think that technology is going to be easier and faster for us to work with and be able to change those kind of things. So I think technology is going to um, advance and uh, we'll, we'll see beyond that. So it'll be, interesting to see how hard editing is like it at one point, you know, it was really hard to change frame rates or sizes or any of these things. And, and as the technology gets better, it's just helping us tell stories better. I agree. Yeah. I saw some technology the other day where you could take a very low resolution resolution image, say, you know, 240 by 240 and blow it up to 4k and the AI introduces the pixels that weren't there. I mean, so, I mean, even I it's crazy. things like that, who knows what we're going to be able to do in five years. I mean, maybe you're going to be able to shoot a film in 4k, let's say, and you're going to be able to blow it up to the eyeball uh, without having to do, a, you know, additional setups. So it just seems like this technology is going to be empowering editors more and more to do more creative things. And, you know, obviously it's going to come with a generation of directors that, you know, knows how to harness that power. And uh, it could it could lead uh, to some pretty exciting stuff. Yeah, I'm really intrigued by this, what they call the the volume. You know, ILM's got the volume that they're shooting uh, 
uh, the Mandalorian in. Yeah. It's basically, instead of using green screen, they put the actual backgrounds on big LED screens that surround you. And through some camera trickery, it looks like you're on location. Right. Well, that's huge. It, well, you think, oh, well, then that saves you going on location. But it's more than that. They, they pointed out, well, you can shoot a, a golden hour scene all day long, like right. right now, right? One of our big problems is you probably know, you've probably experienced it yourself. You go out and you shoot golden hour, which is, you know, directors love shooting golden hour, but you only get a couple of takes. Right. And you could also find that you love one take, but you want to intercut it with a scene, a take that is almost too dark. And they don't quite cut together now because the lighting has changed so much in the course of 10 minutes. Um, so those kind of things are huge. I've got a story that I would love to personally tell that involves a bunch of young children in really dangerous situations. And I couldn't shoot it. Right. You know, it would be impossible to shoot, but on this, on this virtual set, it would be very possible to shoot with young children in dangerous situations and just opens up the story possibilities. Yeah. Another thing I heard about was this unreal engine, you know, one of these gaming engines that might be yep. able to be used or that is starting to be used for elements yeah, that drives, of real people. Yeah, that right. That drives Unreal Engine is driving most of those backgrounds on those virtual sets. Mm. And it can be done for people as well. It's it's crazy. The other strange thing that just started happening was, um, I don't know whether you heard about this, but the documentary Roadrunner with um, Tony Bourdain. Anthony Bourdain. Yeah, Anthony Bourdain. They had some emails or some letters, some things that he'd written, but they wanted him to speak them and he's dead. So they actually were able to use AI to replicate his voice speaking the emails that he wrote. Wow. So you've got that kind of technology and that could, that could be, that could happen with, with us, you know, instead of doing ADR where, you know, you've probably done it yourself where you've got, you know, I don't know who's in your movie, Brad Pitt. And he's, you go, Oh, I want him to say this word or these phrases. Oh, I'll put it on the back of his head. You know, we'll shoot this scene from behind him and then I'll speak him. Right. But it's your voice for, you know, for, for a couple of days, it's your voice, right? It's your voice saying what you want Brad Pitt to say. But, and then eventually they ADR it, they get him into an ADR studio and you cut in actually Brad's voice right. over the back of his head. But for a long time, it's your voice, which is not good, you know, right. no offense, but it, it takes you right out of the it, scene. Like it takes you, it takes you out of the scene. Right. But what if you could just go, you know, you're working on a movie and Avid develops some technology or premiere where you go, oh, I wish Brad Pitt said, hey, Lawrence, how you doing? And you just type it and it's. Brad Pitt's voice says, Hey, Lawrence, how you doing? Like that is possible. That's scary. That's going to open up a whole new world of deep fakes. <laughs> I know it. Think about it. It'd be crazy. Yeah. But, but very useful for, uh, for temp ADR or, or maybe they'll never have to come at, come in an ADR ever again. Oh God. hundred percent. That's amazing stuff. Okay. So my yeah. last question, and, and, you know, I asked this to pretty much everybody. What kind of advice would you give someone who says, how do I become a professional editor? Well, it will sound uh, sound like uh, I'm blowing smoke up your butt, but uh, I tell them if, if they're an assistant editor, I tell them to do the master of the workflow uh, program for sure. But uh, other than that, um, I think that really there are two main, there's probably three ways that you can get into the business. The first is you work your way up as an assistant editor, which means you start as a post PA, 
uh, you go be a second assistant, first assistant, and then eventually you work your way into the edit chair. That's the traditional route. And there are tremendous benefits to that. You know, you're really learning your craft. You're, you're, you've got a built-in network. You, the editor that you work for knows people. The, the second assistant or the first assistant goes off and they remember you and then they want, you know, they hire you. So there's great benefits to that. The other way is uh, kind of what I did, which was I, back in the early days in 1984, I produced a documentary that won some national awards and got me out of my little small town and into Chicago. And, and my career progressed along that way. So you can certainly do your own project and, and yeah. you got YouTube, right? You can do a YouTube channel that makes hundreds of millions of dollars a year now. I mean, literally you've got uh, a distribution channel through YouTube, through Vimeo, through a bunch of other things, TikTok, for example, that you could make your own projects and distribute them. Um, so that's a people are building editing careers on YouTube. A, Absolutely. hundred percent they are. And people are making a ton of money as content creators on YouTube. And I wish I'd thought of it earlier. I might've gone the same way. Like, see if I can make a $5 million <laughs> a year on YouTube. And then the third way is, um, somewhat luck oriented, but either you go to film school and you're in the same film class as some director that then makes it big. You know, Ryan Coogler is an example of this. He did um, Fruitvale Station, you know, kind of small indie. And then next thing you know, he's doing Black Panther, you know. Um, and if you're right. his buddy in film school, well, then and you directed his student film. Well, the next thing you know, you're directing Black Panther. Right. So that can right. happen. Another really interesting thing that I heard of from somebody that I thought was brilliant advice was they said that they got themselves to Sundance and it could be any film festival. They went to Sundance and they figured they weren't going to go to the feature films because those people are already, even though they're, they're small independents, they're already kind of established. They went to the short films where they saw that the director had edited their own short film. And they figured that the only reason the director edited their own short film is because they had to, not because they wanted to. And those short film directors at Sundance or any of those places, they love to talk to the audience and, and they're there. They want, they hey, watch my movie. And then afterwards they, they <laughs> want people to come talk to them, right? They want that. Yep. And so this guy said, I just went up to this director that I liked his short film. And I said, Oh, I saw you direct, you edited your own short film. Um, I would love to be your editor on your next project. And sure enough, they did. They, they cut together a small feature together and that feature got the guy like some $200 million gigantic blockbuster. And the next thing you know, this guy in like two films, he got a $200 million movie. That's amazing. So a little bit of luck, but also some brain power, right? You, who, who, who yeah. needs me? And who's, who's likely right. to need me instead of Lawrence Jordan? You know, Lawrence right. Jordan isn't going right. to be out there busting his hump, trying to go to some short film project at Sundance. <laughs> but I, I don't will. know. That's a pretty good idea. I need to meet some new directors. <laughs> Trust me. I'm going to go to Sundance and I'm going to start doing that. So, yeah. Let's go together. That'll be fun. We can right. hang out on the bar at the, in the bars on Main Street. Perfect. I've done it before. And then I will be like, okay, you don't want to go with Lawrence. You want to go with me. <laughs> I'm two years younger oh, than he is. <laughs> they'll find that out soon enough. Um, Steve, thank you so much, man. Uh, it's great to talk to you, uh, your insights 
and uh, always enjoy listening to Art of the Cut podcast. Thank you. Uh, so many fantastic interviews. Look forward to uh, seeing more and uh, really appreciate it. Thank you very much for being with us here today. It was great being here and uh, I'm so proud. I, I, I knew about Master the Workflow before it was a real thing and to see the success you guys have had just warms my heart. Thank you very much. And by the way, we'll be uh, linking to Steve's website and his books uh, in the descriptions. So if you want to find out more about Steve and what he's uh, written about and so on and so forth, they'll be there. Great. Thank you so much. Great being here. Thanks again, Steve. Take care. Look forward to seeing your doc. <laughs>